Well, good evening. If we turn your ancient word to Genesis chapter 2. Thank you, Adam, Regen, praise team, musicians, for preparing us for the word of God through the preached word. Isn't that remarkable? Ancient words, but it's an ancient word that doesn't age, unlike us. Uh, it's living and active, and that's why it's able to change us even now. Um, it's the power of the, the Word of God. Well, let's pray and ask the Lord to bless our time together. Lord, thank you uh, for the Lord's Day. It's a gift, a gift that was ushered in by a resurrection the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Lord, as we conclude this evening through this preaching time, give us grace to steward this time faithfully. Uh, give me grace to faithfully steward the pulpit. Give grace to your people to steward the hearing of the word. We all need to hear this word tonight, and we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the... Roman Empire that, that we see in the first century, the New Testament period, the concept of a weekend hadn't yet been imagined. It's hard for us to get our minds around that. And so there were no days set apart uh, for the working person, for the laborer, uh, for a, a leisure day in the week. In fact, the invention of the weekend is relatively a, a recent phenomenon. It's almost entirely a Western phenomenon at that. Uh, Philip Sofer, uh, in one of his works, writes this. He says, the earliest recorded use of the word weekend occurred in 1879. So it was just, just a, 140 years or so ago. In an English magazine called Notes and queries in Staffordshire. And it says, if a person leaves home at the end of his week's work on the Saturday afternoon to spend the evening of Saturday and the following Sunday with friends at a distance, he is said to be spending his weekend at so-and-so. It's the first time that term had ever been coined, 1879. And so it took decades for, for Saturday to change from a half day to a full day's rest. In 1908, a New England mill became the first U.S. factory to institute the five-day week. 1908. It did so to accommodate the Jewish workers at the mill. Um, they wanted to observe Saturday, uh, Saturday Sabbath, the Shabbat. And so it forced them to work on Sundays. But that offended the majority Christians who worked at the mill. And so to accommodate them, the mill granted everyone two-day weekends. And all other factories followed. It was just in 1908. And then the Great Depression cemented the two-day weekend. Because what they learned, starting in 1929, the, the Great Depression, is that shorter hours were a remedy to unemployment. All right? So the idea 
of having a complete day of rest or even having a weekend wouldn't make sense to most people in world history. And so here's the question. How does that fit with the biblical concept of Sabbath keeping? Or even you could say the fourth commandment, keeping the Sabbath and keeping it holy. Well, we're going to see that tonight. And at this point, we have seen the first six days of creation, but we're not done with the creation account. There's an unfortunate chapter division in chapter 2. I don't know why uh, the chapter division came uh, where it did, but remember, Moses didn't write these chapter divisions. Um, it, they were added later, and this is just an unfortunate place where it was added. So that brings us to the seventh day of the creation account. We're going to be looking at the first three verses tonight. In chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. So this verse serves to complement chapter 1, verse 1. And so together they set the first six days apart from the seventh. Perhaps that's why the one who put these chapter divisions in put it in here to, to set it apart. So, um, in verse 2, it reads, And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. Now, this is the first use of the number seven in the Bible. Someone asked me a really good question this morning. How can you tell when numbers in the Bible are intending to communicate something and when they're just thrown in there uh, just as an arbitrary number? Well, you see them when they become themes, intertextual themes, you're onto something. And, and you see seven as a strong and important emphasis throughout the Bible, just like 40 is a very important number in the Bible, it communicates something. Well, this is the first time we see the number seven. And we saw this morning that Jesus performed his first sign miracle on the seventh day, which is communicating, I believe, something that these miracles are pointing to his finished work that will usher in the ultimate last day Sabbath. And so here we see seven. Now, Bruce Waltke is very helpful here. He's an Old Testament scholar. And uh, he's a, he's a world-class scholar. And he, in one of his books, observes the importance of the number seven. And he gives some examples. And I'll put them on the board for you tonight. Um, he says, creation in six days and divine rest on the seventh. The sabbatical year. We know that there's a sabbatical year. After seven sabbatical years, a year of jubilee. That's the 50th year, we know. The seven-day Feast of Tabernacles, Leviticus 23. Feast of Unleavened Bread, Exodus 34. The seven branches of the lampstand. The seven days march with the seven priests around Jericho. Climaxing on the seventh day with a march seven times around. Joshua chapter 6. You think there's a theme there. And the seven river dippings of the proud leprous Naaman in order to restore his skin. Seven may also signify simply completeness, simple completeness, 
such as Cain's sevenfold revenge and Lamech's boast to avenge himself 77 times. So again, seven is established here, starting in verse two, and we never get away from it, the rest of the Bible. And so the creation uh, in seven days sets a pattern for the significance of the number seven throughout the remainder of Scripture. It has a picture of totality, completion, fullness. Incidentally, it was a unique innovation of Israel. None of the surrounding pagan nations even considered the notion of seven. It was a unique innovation to Israel. So when we borrow the seven days uh, in our culture, we are borrowing from that worldview. If we didn't have Genesis, we wouldn't have a seven-day week. This is an innovation by Israel, more particularly God, who gave it to Israel. Now notice here, it says, on the seventh day, he finished his work and he rested um, on the seventh day. Now, divine rest in this world symbolized the divine king's unchallenged authority. In a sense, it's an enthronement. He is sitting enthroned over his creation. But rested here does not mean, and it's Shabbat. Y'all have heard that word. If you've been to Israel, you've certainly heard the term Shabbat. It's something that they continue to observe today, the Sabbath. Uh, but this is not weariness. God does not get tired. Uh, we know from Isaiah, for instance, he faints not, neither is he weary. So what is this? It is the completion, the enjoyment of the perfection of his creation. All that he created was good. Now this isn't to say that God abandoned his universe after having created it. Uh, Jesus, centuries later, affirmed that God is still at work even on the Sabbath. John chapter 5, listen to these words. This was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus. Because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. But Jesus answered them, my father is working until now. And I am working. So the father is working from, you could say, his palace, his enthronement, as he works to bring about a universal rest, but now it comes in a redemptive context, right? It comes in a redemptive context because um, Genesis 2, God gives humankind these instructions, and it was intended that they carry out these instructions in the context of this enduring Sabbath, but they went rogue. We'll get to that later. Look at me in verse 3. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. Now, the seventh day is different and distinct from the first six days for a variety, in a variety of ways. First of all, there's no introductory formula, and God said, it just says that God rested. Secondly, uh, this day, and this is important, 
doesn't have the usual evening and morning. This implies that creation was intended to enjoy a perpetual rest provided by God, but that didn't happen, did it? Because sin is going to enter the world. Third, uh, this seventh stands outside the paired other days of creation. As we saw, day one corresponds to day four. Day two corresponds to day five. Uh, day three corresponds to day six. There is no correspondence to day seven. Fourth, unlike the creation days, the number seven is repeated. And, and we see it three times in the text. In fact, the, the, the pronoun it is seen two times. And then finally... Uh, the seventh day is the only day God blesses. Now, he blessed the creation in Genesis 1, but this is the only day he blesses and he makes it holy. He sets it apart. It's also interesting, just for a, a side note here, each phrase in verses 1 to 3 contains seven Hebrew words with reference to the seventh day in the middle of each phrase. That's remarkable. Or actually, verses 2 and 3. So every phrase has seven words. You t that, that's just the poetry. That's the, the poetry of Moses. That's not to say it shouldn't be taken literally. Uh, but God invented poetry, right? And you see it here. Well, that's the passage. Now, what was Israel, this is the original audience, to do with this passage? And then we're going to ask, what do we do with it? All right? Well, uh, the Sabbath became, as we know, the fourth commandment. Um, we're going to see that the fourth commandment, the Sabbath, what became the, the sign of the covenant that God made with Israel, the Mosaic covenant. All right? And so... On this day, it was set apart for Israel. It was made holy. It was blessed. Uh, the bread of the presence uh, in the tabernacle was set out every seven days on the Sabbath. On the seventh day, uh, the Israelites would, would visit the sanctuary. Um, Numbers 28 tells us that there were two extra lambs sacrificed on the Sabbath as a burnt offering. And then... Uh, Lamentations 1 says that the congregation didn't miss. They were normally in there on the Sabbath. And then all types of work was forbidden. All types of work was forbidden on the Sabbath. They could not do normal work. Now, in time for Israel, uh, for the people of God, as, as, as time progresses, the Sabbath command would look backwards to two, two things. And this is why the Sabbath was important to Israel. First of all, um, creation was celebrated on the Sabbath. The reason they would look back at, uh, one of the reasons that, that they would observe the Sabbath was that it gave them opportunity to look back uh, and celebrate God the creator. So for instance, uh, Exodus 20, in six days the Lord made heaven and earth to see and all that is in them and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. And so by keeping the Sabbath, the people of God entered into a, a seven-day rhythm, six days of work, one day of rest. We see it even in the gathering of the manna. Second, it was also a time 
to celebrate redemption. Now, I'm going to make this point. It's very important to understand. Israel never celebrated, never observed the Sabbath until they were redeemed out of Egypt. Now, that's an interesting point that we're going to come back to. In Deuteronomy 5, you shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God commanded you to keep the Sabbath. And so one of the reasons they were to keep the Sabbath is it reminded them that God had redeemed them. Now, what does this have to do with Sabbath rest? Well, keep in mind, redemption is an act of recreation. And so what happened after the first creation? Sabbath. What happens after the recreation of redemption? Sabbath. It reminded them of that. And so it became the covenant sign. How do we know that? Well, listen to Exodus 31. Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign. It's a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. And so just as baptism is the covenant sign for new covenant believers... The Sabbath keeping was the covenant sign for those under the Mosaic covenant. Of course, we know that circumcision was the covenant sign for the Abrahamic covenant. Every covenant had these covenant signs. Well, I want to close tonight's discussion by thinking about the significance of the Sabbath for the new covenant believer. Because there's a lot of confusion over this question. And this issue. In fact, there's a lot of debate over this. We know from the fourth commandment that God's people are to keep the Sabbath. And if we lived in colonial America and acted the way we do today, traveling, watching ball games, cutting the grass because it's been raining all week and this is the first day to cut the grass. Uh, anything like that, you would have ended up in jail with your arms and your feet in stocks being publicly humiliated. That would have been your fate in colonial America. Why? Because they considered that as Sabbath-breaking and it was against not just God's law from their perspective, it was against their law. Okay, so that's a very important thought. So the question is not whether uh, we are to keep the other nine commandments. Uh, in fact, all other nine are picked up in the New Testament. The question is, are we bound to the fourth commandment? Because as we're going to make this point, it's not commanded to us under the new covenant. So, if all the other commandments are permanent, why isn't this one permanent? And some would say it is. And there are those who call themselves Sabbatarians. And a Sabbatarian believes that the Sabbath is intended for prayer and praise, reading and hearing God's word, and doing good to our fellow man. That's the Westminster Confession. 
And anything beyond that is breaking of the Sabbath. And so, are we to be Sabbatarians? Well, I'm going to submit to you humbly, even though I respect that position and I have high regard for many people, many theologians, many scholars, many Christians who hold that position, I don't agree with that position. And here's why. Again, the command to keep the Sabbath, the fourth command was a covenant sign of the Mosaic covenant. We're no longer under the Mosaic covenant. All of those other 10 commandments are picked up under what scripture calls the law of Christ. So it is clear that we're to keep those other commandments. Thou shall not have any other gods before me. Um, thou shall not kill or, or murder. Thou shall not commit adultery. Thou shall not covet. All of these commands are picked up under the new covenant. But the reason the Sabbath command isn't picked up in my estimation is because it was the covenant sign for the Mosaic covenant, and that has been made obsolete by the person and work of Jesus Christ. And so, in my understanding of the New Testament, the Mosaic Sabbath was a dim reflection, a shadow of the true rest that only Jesus Christ can bring. Listen to Galatians 4. Paul writes, How can you turn back again to weak and worthless elementary principles of the world? You observe, get this, days and months and seasons and years. I believe that the Sabbath points us to the rest that is found only in Jesus. Listen to these words from Colossians 2. Paul writes, let no one pass judgment on you with regard to a festival or a new moon or a Sabbath. These are a shadow of the things to come. But the substance belongs to Christ. So what he seems to be saying here is that these days, these festivals, including the Sabbath, served as a shadow pointing beyond themselves to the substance, the substance being the Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, he is the rest that the Sabbath points us to. Hebrews, therefore, says there remains a Sabbath, and that's the only place that uh, word is used in Hebrews, for the people of God, who, whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works, as God did from his. <clears throat> so using Israel's history to demonstrate that this rest can only be entered into by faith, he's saying these works are not the works we do manually, they're the works to earn merit. Uh, they're, they're the works to earn salvation. He says they don't bring rest. And then he warns, for good news came to us just as to them but the message they heard did not benefit them because they were not united by faith with those who listened. And so uh, all, ten of the, uh, all ten commandments except for the fourth commandment is picked up in the New Testament. That's a very important point. And I think another important point is that Israel never observed the Sabbath until that covenant was made with Moses, which means... 
Abraham didn't observe the Sabbath. Isaac didn't observe the Sabbath. Jacob did not observe the Sabbath. The patriarchs did not observe the Sabbath. The Sabbath was not observed until the 10th, until the uh, issuing of the Mosaic Covenant. Now, um, when we come to the Gospels, we see something new added to the Sabbath. Jesus declares that he himself is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. Remember, he's doing these acts of mercy, performing miracles on the Sabbath, and I believe he's being intentional because the Pharisees were dwelling in the shadows. And he looks at the Pharisees, I am Lord of the Sabbath. He is saying, I am the one in whom the Sabbath points In other words, it's not that he won't obey the Sabbath. It's that he is the fulfillment of the Sabbath. And so uh, the Pharisees, in their legalism, uh, had missed the whole point of the Sabbath. For example, uh, maybe you've heard this uh, about this resource. It's called the Mishnah. It was an ancient rule book, a Jewish rule book. It It was added regulations like we saw this morning with the the, uh, the water pots, the six water pots in John chapter 2, they added to God's law in the Mishnah. And in the Mishnah, there were 39 classes of work that, that polluted or profaned the Sabbath. Listen to a couple of these. Uh, for instance, it was forbidden to set a dislocated foot on the Sabbath. And so if Adam turned his ankle... And, and that ankle was all jacked up and twisted around, uh, it would have been forbidden for anybody to reset it. He would have had to sit there until the Sabbath was over. It was forbidden to uh, fix the dislocated foot. Or, because the law forbade work, a man who spits, who spits, is guilty of work Depending on what happens to the spit. Kid you not, you can't make this up. If it goes into the dirt and makes a furrow, then it's considered plowing. If it hits a rock, no work is done. So the commandment has not been violated. So what role does the Sabbath And we'll close out here with this. What role does the Sabbath play in the church? When we look at the book of Acts, and we look at the New Testament epistles, and and the reason Acts and the epistles are important for us is because these transpire in our redemptive epic. Christ has ascended. He has sent his spirit That is the messianic age. We're under the new covenant now in Acts in the New Testament. We don't find in Acts, we don't find in the epistles a Sabbatarian pattern. Rather, we see a celebration of the Lord's Day, which is Sunday. In fact, Acts chapter 20, verse 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verses 1 and 2 indicate that now after the resurrection... God's people are gathering on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, not Saturday, which was the Sabbath. B.B. Warfield says this, Christ 
took the Sabbath into the grave with him and brought the Lord's day out of the grave with him on the resurrection morn. And so the most important issue of Sabbath rest in the New Testament is that our rest is in Jesus. Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And this is rest from our work, not physical labor. It's from our efforts to be saved. It's from our efforts to climb a moral ladder to earn and curry favor with God. In Christ, that, that futile seeking has come to an end. In fact, the concern of Hebrews is this refusal by God's people to hear and believe and obey, which is the reason their hearts can't enter into the Sabbath rest. So a new covenant has come with the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And that's important. And this new covenant makes the old covenant obsolete. Hebrews makes that very clear. We're no longer under the old covenant. Indeed, Paul says, believers are no longer under the law. Romans chapter 6. That does not mean, though, that we're not under commands. But the commands that we now have are found under the law of Christ. That's the phrase that is used in the Bible. And, and, and so we do have commands laid upon us. Um, Paul says that the covenant made at Sinai, which was the Mosaic covenant, right? It was an interim guardian covenant established 430 years after the covenant with Abraham. But it would come to a, uh, its completion when the seed of Abraham came, Galatians 3, and that is the Son of God. So that's why I don't believe the fourth commandment is binding to us. So how about the issue of creation itself? Some people would argue, well, even if the fourth commandment is not binding on us, uh, we see God resting on the seventh day in Genesis. And so is that example binding for us? It's certainly a good argument. But even that is not convincing. First of all, the Sabbath, if it were a creation ordinance, it should have been required for the patriarchs. And you don't see anybody in Genesis observing the Sabbath. It should have been required if it had been a creation ordinance. And I think that's a very important argument. Secondly, everything that you see in creation, the creation account, isn't necessarily binding for believers. For instance, uh, Adam and Eve are called to till the ground, to work basically as farmers. I love farmers. Praise God for our farmers but not everyone is called to be a farmer. Third, never are the nations indicted for breaking the Sabbath. Only Israel's indicted for breaking the Sabbath because only Israel was under the Mosaic law. But the nations were indicted for idolatry. They were indicted for turning their back on the true and living God, but they were never indicted for breaking the Sabbath. And then... Finally, when we get to the New Testament, um, the Sabbath just isn't an issue. In fact, in Paul's writings, Sabbath is mentioned only one time, and it's negative. 
Listen to what he says in Romans 14. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Do you see what he's saying there? It's an issue of conscience. It's an issue of conscience. In fact, the word Sabbath uh, is only found one time there. So what is the application of Sabbath for us? That's where we're going to end tonight. And, and there's only three options. Well, there's a fourth that I'll mention, but it's really not an option. The first option is Seventh-day Sabbatarianism. There's a group that does that, the Seventh-day Adventists. Um, the reason I say that's not an option for us is, for one thing, you see the New Testament church worshiping on the Lord's Day on Sunday. And so we certainly see with the resurrection, the church in the New Testament begins to worship on Sunday rather than on uh, Saturday. So I don't think Seventh-day Sabbatarianism is an option. Another option is Lord's Day Sabbatarianism. And, and many of our um, Reformed Baptist brethren and, and Presbyterian brethren, godly people who are remarkable, many of them are remarkable scholars, still hold to what they would say is the second uh, uh, Lord's Day Sabbatarianism. Uh, and so in that particular case, the fourth commandment is transferred uh, to the Lord's day. But again, for all the points that I've made, that's why I don't believe that we're under uh, a Sabbath mandate. So my view, and it's likely your view in practice, if you ever watch a ball game in the afternoon, or you've ever clean dishes, or have you ever cooked a meal on a Sunday, or, or gone out to eat on a Sunday? Um, my view is Lord's Day observance. That's the position I hold. Uh, we tend to see that in Hebrews where it says, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. And so I do believe that as a pattern of life, God's people, now there are some providentially hindered. We do have legitimate shut-ins. And we need to pray for, and we need to minister to our shut-ins. And I think we, we have people like Tom on staff that does an amazing job with that. And many of you love on our shut-ins. I know there are people providentially hindered. But for those in a normal set of, situ, uh, uh, you know, set of circumstances, it is a sin not to be consistent. Um, it is a sin for the Lord's Day observance, not to be the pattern of your life. And, and that's where I believe the Scripture teaches us, Lord's Day observance. Um, indeed, it's very likely, given that there were no weekends in the first century, that New Testament believers had to work on Sunday. They had to work on Saturday, and they had to work on Sunday. In fact, many scholars believe the reason Eutychus fell asleep when Paul was preaching was not because Paul was boring. It's because Eutychus had been working all day and he fell out of a window. So if you've been working all day, don't sit next to a window when you hear me preach. <laughs> so I believe the Bible clearly teaches that a Christian who is not faithful on the Lord's day, I know there are exceptions. There may be times you're sick, 
There may be times it's not necessarily the wise thing to come to church because of a, a pandemic or whatever it may be. But as a pattern of life, if a Christian is not immersed in a local church, that Christian is in sin. Not because they're breaking the fourth commandment, but because they're breaking the law of Christ, which tells us to forsake not the assembling of your, uh, together of yourselves, which is the habit, he said, of some of you. Um, so are there things that we should not do on the Lord's Day? I don't think it's a sin to cut the grass if it's been raining all week. I don't think it's a sin to watch a football game, per se. But anything that would detract us or distract us from corporate worship needs to be eliminated. It needs to be eliminated because the Lord's day is binding for God's people. Again, not because it's the fourth commandment, but because it's included in the law of Christ. It's commanded to us in Hebrews chapter 10. So those are the three options. I believe the third of the three is the most consistent with what the New Testament teaches. But there is one more option, but it's really not an option. And I know it's not an option for you. You wouldn't be here on a Sunday night. And that is non-observance. I don't even have it on the board. I didn't want to put it up there. Uh, we see that growing today. Now, it's not surprising for unbelievers not to observe the, uh, the Lord's Day, uh, corporate worship. In fact, uh, Bill Gates... Uh, and, and we have a member of our church. Let me just tell you this. We have a member of our church who actually invited Bill Gates to church one time. I'm not going to say who on, on video or audio. If you want to know, you can ask me later. But he was asked one time why he didn't believe in God. And here's what he said. Just in terms of allocation of time resources... Religion is not very efficient. There's a whole lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. And, and that's consistent with an unbeliever's worldview. It is. He's going to realize how wrong that is in due time. But what troubles me is not that unbelievers act like unbelievers. What troubles me is that the Lord's Day is being increasingly marginalized by our culture of believing or professing believers. That is my deeper concern. I was talking to someone yesterday, and, 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 and this person was, was discussing his son, who's, who's going through a tough time, and his son's a part of a ball team. And evidently, there are believers on the ball team. And I said, well, your son needs to be in a local church. And he said, well, he's got believers on that ball team that can replace the church. They didn't use the word place. They can take the place of the church. No, they can't. They can't. Camp, a crew does not replace it. FCA does not replace it. Athletes in action, all of these are wonderful ministries. RUF does not replace it. You cannot replace Christ church. <clears throat> so let me close here with a challenging word from Tom Schreiner in this regard. Covenant believers, he's talking about new covenant, say goodbye to the Sabbath, for it belongs to the old covenant. 
And we do not live under that administration. But we also say hello to the Sabbath. For the Sabbath is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and points us to our future heavenly rest. So how do we do that? We do that by our faith in Jesus and our commitment to the same things he's committed to. And what is he committed to? He's committed to his church. So that's how we say, as Schreiner says here, hello to the Sabbath. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace. Thank you that there was a better covenant that came. A covenant that not only brings the forgiveness of sins, but also the change of our hearts by the Spirit. A covenant that was ratified in blood. Not the blood of a, a lamb or goat or a ram. The blood of the one in whom the rams and the goats and the lambs pointed to. The all-sufficient sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And now because of that new covenant, we gather tonight. Lord, because of that new covenant, we love the Lord's day. Because of that new covenant, we love corporate worship. And because of that new covenant, we love, Lord, on the Lord's day to be tethered to God's people and to God's word. Lord, I thank you in your providence that long ago, uh, the faithful of Lakeview determined we're going to have two services on Sunday night. Lord, I, I, I know in no way intend to be legalistic here. There are faithful churches that don't have two services. I recognize that. There are faithful Christians who don't go to two services. They are faithful. They walk with you. They love you. But Lord, I am so grateful for two services. And I am so grateful for those who gather here on Sunday night. Because Lord, I believe that these means of grace are used mightily to change us. They're used mightily for us to behold the Lamb of God. Thank you, Lord, that the Lamb of God is the one who brings us the rest that our hearts long for. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for worshiping with us today. If you felt the Lord leading you to respond today, whether that was to receive Christ for the first time or to take your next step in baptism, or if you have a prayer request, we want to start that conversation with you. Visit lakeviewbaptist.org slash contact to get in touch with one of our pastors. And as always, you can stay connected with us through our social media and website.